Welcome to the Experience Christian Church Message Podcast. We are a church startup based out of Exton, Pennsylvania, committed to giving the community a fresh start with God and with church. Our mission is to help people experience God's love in a practical way. We would love to connect with you. Would you text ECC info to 94000 or go to our website, experiencecc.org for more information and to learn how you can be a part of our community. Enjoy today's message. Uh, we've been in a series going through the Gospel of Luke. And what's great about reading through a gospel is we get a chance to see Jesus in his fullness. We get to see things that really get us excited, the healings, the passion points. But we also hear some things when Jesus makes it clear that he's the way, that we need to realign our lives towards him. And it's great to have to process all this information. And so this week we're covering 13, 14, and 15 of the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 13, we start off with a tale about repentance. And that's going to be the bookend, the front half of what we're talking about today. And then on the tail end, we'll look at Luke 15, where Jesus tells three parables pointing towards the Father's heart towards repentance. So Luke 13, 1 to 5, I want to start there and just read these five verses. It says, about this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee, Jesus asked? Is that why they suffered? Have you ever heard someone make an assessment because someone's gone through a hard time that that's God's judgment on them? See, that's what's happening here. Your commentary in the New Living Translation, the Life Application Bible, has a good commentary. I'll, I'll give you some insight here. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee. These people from Galilee probably were doing some kind of insurrection, or at least hinted around it. And so while they were at the temple making sacrifices to God, Pilate had them murdered. So you could just imagine the word on the street. These people were killed while they were making sacrifices to God. God wasn't pleased with them, was he? That's what the assumption was. That's what the word on the street was. They must have been doing something wrong. And you see, the Pharisees, they weren't against political uprisings. They think, you mess with Rome, you're going to get Rome's results, which in this case was death. So while these guys sacrificed animals and the blood of the animals was shed, their own blood was mixed in because they were murdered. And so the Pharisees are thinking, got what they had coming. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. You see, whenever we're focused on someone else's life, we don't think much about our own, do we? We got somebody else going through a hard time like, man, they must have did something to make God mad. I'm good. And he's like, that's not quite how it works. So then he says something to another crowd. He says, and what about the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? What about those 18 people? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? Now, they were in Jerusalem probably building an aqueduct in support of Rome. So you have these groups called the Zealots who thought, you should rise up against Rome. You should fight against Rome. And so they're thinking, those people got what they deserved. They're aligning with Rome, working for Rome. Look what they had coming to them. But Jesus here says, no. And I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. 
Repentance has to do with not just saying we're sorry, but it's realigning our life towards God's will. And if I'm focusing on how you may not be living up to God's standards, well, then I'm not looking at my own life, am I? And so how does God feel about people who repent, who actually decide to change the direction of going their own way and to realign their lives with God's way? Because Jesus is clear, it's not that some people need to do it. We all need to do it. It doesn't take long to get distracted, does it? But what's God's heart as he's dealing with repentance? Is he angry? Is he yelling? What's his posture? And so Luke 15 gives us a unique insight into the heart of God when we're willing to repent. Luke 15 is some of the most famous teachings of Jesus. It's the parables. So let's go to Luke 15.1. It starts, Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Tax collectors and sinners, these are the people that were least like Jesus in many ways. Tax collectors, they were actually in cahoots with Rome. They were charging their fellow countrymen. They were ascribing to make a profit off of people as they're giving money to Rome. And sinners, well, sinners were people that just did not care about God's direction and lived their own way. In the Pharisees' minds, sinners were anyone who does not follow the religious system of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, teachers of the law, these were people who dotted every I, crossed every T. They had their religion on lockdown. They knew when to pray. They knew when to read the text. They studied the Bible. If there was a way to do life in a religious system, they had it nailed down. And so these people were the tax collectors and sinners. They somehow enjoyed listening to Jesus, which says a lot about Jesus, right? People don't come around people where they don't feel welcome or loved or seen or cared for, yet they felt welcome to come be part of Jesus' teaching. But this next group wasn't very happy about them, and that, of course, was the Pharisees and teachers of religious law. In verse 2, it says, This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Again, the Pharisees, the religious cream of the crop, they were separatists. They said, if you live with them, if you laugh with them, if you love them, well, then you're supporting them. And Jesus is like, nope, I do life with these people. In their separate mindset, they thought the only way to point people back to God was making sure people knew if they were out of God's will or out of God's way or out of alignment, well, they should feel our judgment. They should feel our rebuke. And so we have this crowd mixed together. Have you ever been in mixed company? where you weren't quite sure if you were loved or accepted or welcomed, and you're kind of in the same room and you're wondering, what is happening here? And Jesus is like, what am I going to do with you hostile separate groups? So Jesus tells them a story. Verse 3. And he says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? Jesus asked the question. So you figure what the crowd's doing, right? The crowd's looking at how they're responding to Jesus' teaching. They're looking and they're surprised that everyone's like, yeah. That shepherd would go find them. They're seeing commonalities. Like even this person I don't get along with, we're both shaking our heads and nodding. We're like, okay, yeah, that's what he would do. Jesus is like, this is what the shepherd does, right? If a man loses 100, he'd go find one. I have two cats. One goes missing. Maybe I go, look, there's a 50% chance depending on which one's missing, right? <laughs> Especially today when one of them ate the other cat's food and made quite of a mess of himself. 
And I didn't have time to play clean up on aisle one, which I had to do before church today. <laughs> this guy says, I have a hundred sheep and every one of them is worth something. I don't rejoice because I have 99. I shift my focus to the one that was lost. They're all in agreement. Jesus goes on, and when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. He loves this sheep, and when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. So people in the audience are like, Okay, I'm getting this. But then Jesus says something that would divide the audience somewhat. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. And so here, the audience is a little divided. The sinners and tax collectors, they're probably thinking, are Jesus' words true? Like, would he seek after me? And if I happen to be found, would he rejoice? Like, or would he just say, where you been? Glad you showed up again. And what happens in heaven when this happens? You know, think of the Lord's Prayer. What's he say? My will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we, something, when we see something happen in heaven, we ought to do everything we can to make it happen here, right? That's a heavenly vision that we bring to reality. You've heard our saying, heaven's not segregated, so why on earth is the church? And so... We know heaven's not, so let's bring heaven here. So let's get a mindset of what happens. Like people celebrate when sinners repent, when they turn their way back towards God. And the Pharisees, you know what they're hearing? Yeah, there's lots of people here that need to repent. Right? They're like, we're righteous. We're doing the right things, you all. That's their heart. Jesus goes on and tells them another story. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. She will light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it. These coins are valuable. These coins actually have, she's dependent on these 10 coins probably to make her living. But not only for financial stability, she values these coins. Most commentators say because they were probably a gift, a wedding gift. There's sentimental value attached to them as well. And so everyone in the audience is like, yeah, those kind of coins you go look for. And the connection, again, Jesus makes to heaven. He says, and when she finds it, she'll call her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. Everyone's tracking you like, yeah, okay, we see lost things when they're found. It's worth celebrating. And Jesus says, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when one sinner repents, even one. And he's explaining to both groups the heart of God for both groups. God's not pleased when one is missing, even in a crowd of a hundred. He's not pleased when one in ten is missing. And as they're starting, their wheels are turning, and they're wondering how this affects their life. And why is God, why is Jesus telling them these stories when they're all together in the crowd? Jesus tells them a third story. He says, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Don't let the familiarity of this story close your mind to it, how shocking this would be to both audiences. You see, both sinners and tax collectors and the religious elite would have looked at one another and said, what kind of son would do that? People would say, I'm not that bad, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, who would do this? Because what he's doing is he's actually wishing that his father was dead. He looks at everything his father has and says, that's going to be mine one day. How about that day becomes today? 
Dad, I want what you have now because I'm tired of living here. I want to go out and do what's good for me and mine. So give me what I have coming to me today. Now, it's an estate, right? This isn't money in a bank. What do you do when you have to liquidate an estate quickly? Sell it. You ever heard of an estate sale? What's the value you get on return for with an estate sale versus selling every item what they're worth? You're doing some calculating. You probably got an idea. You know? My wife, I remember when we had our first yard sale, her pricing policy was 30% off retail prices, right? Like, she's like, I don't want to give this stuff away. And I'm like, you ain't going to lose anything today because it's like, you know, something worth $10, she's marking for seven. Estate sales are probably quite the opposite, right? You're almost giving it away. And so here in this setting, this son says, I need that money now. And you'll see in a moment, he gets it in a few days. Let's say he has 1,000 acres or 900 acres for easier math. Younger son gets a third of the estate. Older son gets double the portion of the other sons. 900 acres. He liquidates 300 acres like that. Bam. Probably gets a little bit of nothing for it. Son doesn't care. It's something. It's more than he had the day before. What does land mean in that kind of society? Everything. Land and life go hand in hand. You're known by how much property you have. You have value and worth because you have land. And when that land's liquidated... That father's never going to be seen the same way, is he? That other sibling's not going to be seen the same way. You lose something, people have word on the street about what you're going to do, right? Can you believe what this guy's son said? There's huge community impacts that maybe we haven't thought about before. And so they know what this boy's asking them, his father to do, and they can't wait to hear the next part of the story. How's this father going to respond? Because the law says if a son's rebellious, you can murder him. You can ostracize them. You can send them away. So how's his father going to respond? Well, it says, so his father agreed to divide his wealth between the sons. He did this within a few days because it says a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land to start his own estate, employing anyone in need, right? He was very responsible with this money. If you've read the story, that's not what happened. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. Father's back home, looking at the property that was once was his, as new people are moving in, doing their things. The land that could produce life, not only for him, but even his sons. And he's looking at that land, and while his son's wasting the cents on a dollar that he managed to put in his wallet, his father's at home seeing what's left. Interesting perspective. This son who thought, it's all going to work out. It's all going to be good. When I get out of here, that's when life starts. When I get this freedom. In verse 14, it says, about that time, his money ran out. A great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. Things weren't working out as good as he had hoped. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. This Jewish boy in Gentile territory is doing the lowest job he could ever do. He's feeding pigs. The young man became so hungry, even his finances weren't enough. Even what the farmer gave him wasn't enough to sustain himself. And so he was so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. 
things weren't working out like he had hoped. Not everything works out. He couldn't get a job. And when he finally begged for some provision, it still wasn't enough. The crowds love this part of the story, honestly. They're thinking this boy's getting what he deserves. No one, not even us, would treat our father that way. When he finally came to his senses, this is the young man, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. We don't understand the child's attitude, right? Is this pure motive or is this impure? But he's not asking to be forgiven and made a son again. There does seem to be something in him that wants to earn this right back because he's asking to come on as a hired servant to maybe pay back his father some of what was lost. And so he has this mindset of, okay, I'm going to go back. And like some of us, we rehearse what we're going to say, what we're going to do, right? We start thinking, what am I going to say when I see him? What's my plan? How do I get back to being whole? And so he's considering all of this. The audience does not feel sorry for him at all. He's rehearsing, rehearsing this speech for his dad, and he makes his way home. So everyone's leaning in. What's Jesus going to say next? And so he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with... What would you fill in those blanks with? What's that? Yeah. That's kind of the right answer, but is that how you do it tomorrow? That was your child? Maybe. Maybe. What do you think the audience is putting me in there? Filled with anger? Scorn, disgust, disappointment, retribution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what do you think he'd want to do? Filled with retribution and anger, he then ignored him, sat him down, gave him a piece of his mind, letting him know how hard life's been since he's been gone. The shame he has faced from the community, the neighborhood, what the neighbors were saying about him, what they were saying about his brother, right? He's got plenty of things he could throw in there. But shockingly, Jesus fills in the blanks this way. He returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. When we get so used to the story... We lose the absurdity of it, the amount of pain that this father was in. Yet, here he was embracing him, kissing him. Fathers don't run in that society. They don't run at all. They're too dignified. He didn't sit in there and say, I'm gonna, now I'm thinking what I'm going to say to him. He sees him from a long way off. And every step, he's got another thing he's building, right? He's building this case. like, son, this is it. But no, it's passion. He just gets up, takes off. It's pure love. It's pure missing him. And so he runs. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he's about to keep going, right? He's about to say, hey, just let me give me a job. Let me be a hired servant. Let me pay you back. Let me, let me, let me, let me. His father cuts him off, interrupts him. But the father said to his servants, quick, Bring the finest robe in the house, put it on him, get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, 
For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. The absurdity, the waste, the extravagant love. Not what that younger son deserves, right? But we see the heart of the father. We see the father of the father when a woman loses her precious coin or a shepherd loses his sheep. And the son returns home. That's the heart of the father. But this is a parable about two sons. In verse 25, it says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. This crazy scene's happening in the front of the house. And way back in the fields, the son is out working, doing the responsible thing, honoring his father, doing the right work, right? And as he returns home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of his servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. How's that brother hear those words? Can't you just see his face? Can't you just see his fists? Can't you just think about what's going through his mind? I've been waiting a long time. I thought I would never see that boy again. And here he comes. Here he comes. The brother was angry and wouldn't go into the feast. His father came out to him also. But he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all of this time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrated by killing the fattened calf. Wow. Jesus tells this story. Like, Jesus, did you have to give that much detail? Like, you're making this story up, right? Like, this isn't real life, and you're making these details come alive. This is pretty graphic, Jesus. Unpacking his service, he says, All these years I slaved for you, never once did you do a single thing. I'm sorry. All these years I slaved for you, and never once refused to do a single thing you told me. That's not joyful obedience, is it? This is keeping track. Like, just earning my own payday. Dad, I'm going to get your estate, so I'm taking care of this. Not because I love you, but because it's the right thing to do. He says, in all this time, you never gave me one young goat for a feast with my friends. He's jealous. He looks at that brother and like, I wish I could live like him, but here I am stuck doing the responsible thing because that's what I'm supposed to be doing. He says, and yet, when this son of yours comes back squandering your money on prostitutes, Either word had gotten back how bad he was and how notorious of a sinner he was. Or he knew his character. Either way, it doesn't look good for that younger brother, does it? But either way, that older son's colors are finally being shown. He was joyless, jealous, and full of judgment. He didn't live a good life either, did he? He was stuck in his own prison. Everyone's leaning in. What's the father going to do with this son? Is he going to let this fun son have it? He's going to say, get inside now. We're a family. We're celebrating. But his father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead. He's come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. Calls him dear son, affirms his position and possessions, reminds him that he has a brother, and his return is worth celebrating. And what I love is the story ends there. 
the crowd like us are wondering what happens to these two brothers. They're leaning in. Tell us, did that younger son stay? Did that older son go in? And yet here's God telling this story because they're the active participants. The message is for them. Did the sinners and tax collectors receive Jesus' point? I want to know how the crowd responded more than what happened to the brothers. As they're staring with one another, being like, what are we supposed to do with this story? He just stopped talking all of a sudden. Like, what do we do? Like, do they start talking amongst themselves? Like, are you the younger brother? Am I the older brother? Who are we in this story? Why did he just stop talking? He literally walked off. Like, he left us standing here. Like, what are we supposed to do? Do they hug each other? Probably not. That probably would have been recorded. So they're probably just leaving smirking and thinking, what do we do with this teaching? And so we are left, what do we do with this teaching, right? And so a couple questions for you. One is, do we see our need for God's grace? Like this story reveals there are several ways at which we need to repent and realign ourselves from God. Some of us, we're convinced that the better life is outside of God's will and God's way. And so we go and live our own way. We seek pleasure, make the most in life. And it's just that we're not even mindful about what God does. We just kind of want to do our own thing. Maybe not even be disrespectful or belligerent. We just say, my way will work out for me. So I'm going to chase after my own way. But Jesus is like, no, we're a loving father who has a better way to live. And you can chase after all this fulfillment, but it ends up being empty. It may not be empty right away, but sooner or later, that bucket of pleasure empties. And you're left with an empty bucket. So he's calling us back. And then to the older ones, the judgmental ones who say, like, well, I don't sin. I keep, I keep everything on lockdown. I, I got it up tight. We're good. Well, the heart's equally far from God, isn't it? And rather than sometimes we make the mistake of saying, oh, I wonder which son I am. Am I the older one or the younger one? I think we both have both sons in us, right? Like we can see elements of each. When in fact, we are the younger son every time we look for something in pleasure. If we go to find happiness in a career or a better home or more education or more money, more sexual pleasure, more influence. That's when we know we're like the younger son. And we're the older son. Whenever we develop good habits with an expectation that we're pleasing God or we get something from doing it, right? I'm going to church every week. I'm about to see God show up and answer something for me. I've been reading my Bible. I've been praying every day. God, here it comes. I'm ready. But is it a heart for God? Conviction comes when we start thinking about this. The second question is, do people see us as a place to experience grace? Are we a place for healing and hospitality, hope? Or do people see us as just an opportunity to come and judge them? Do we let people know they are loved and missed by God? Yesterday, you know how Instagram or Facebook has a way of knowing what you're going to like watching? You know, just kind of like these reels show up. Well, I wasted about 25 minutes yesterday watching this guy. He's an artist. I want to show you a video of this guy. He captures the beauty of people uh, on a subway. And you can just check out this video real quick. It's 30 seconds. Yes. Yeah. 
sits on the subway, stares at someone, draws, probably gets threatened. So then he's like, I'm drawing you. You know, I think there's probably somewhere out. He tells him that. But he sees people, right? Like you got to really see someone to draw them. Because the people look like the people. It's not like he takes away blemishes or wrinkles or anything. He draws them as they are. Take a look at this in another video. The music's changed. And watch her reaction. Miss, I drew you. I did this drawing of you. Are you okay? <clears throat> Why did she get choked up? What's that? She didn't like how she looked. Maybe. Maybe. She was seen. Maybe she saw how she felt. Mm -hmm. Saw how other people saw her. Maybe she just thought nobody ever looked at her like that. Yeah. Maybe she'd never seen noticed and the fact that he captured her. Or she was overcome with gratitude that someone would withdraw her picture. Someone that full gratitude. Yeah. Someone noticed. Someone noticed her. Someone who constantly feels unseen is seen. Yeah. Her pain. Mm-hmm. Someone noticed her pain. Yeah, someone noticed her pain even. You know, the great thing about art, your response to that says a lot about how you're feeling. Right? What gripped me in that, for me personally, was that she is seen. And I can't help but wonder, did someone catch her, capture beauty that when she looked in the mirror earlier that day, she had complaint? You see... This is how a loving father sees his child. And the good news for us, God loves each of us. Rather, you are a mess, and you've spoiled life, and you've wasted resources. You see, we could say a sheep wanders off innocently. Of course we rejoice when a sheep is lost. He's not doing anything intentionally. He's just going out being a sheep. He's just following his nose, and before he knows it, he's lost the whole herd, and he's on his own. Rejoice over a coin, of course. Things get lost. I lose things all the time. And when I find it, I am happy. But what about when something wanders off intentionally, maliciously, doesn't care about the shrapnel that affects everyone else? How do we feel about that? And the most pressing question is this. Would you offer grace to your brother? You see, I can celebrate someone else when they come home if it doesn't cost me anything. But would you celebrate your brother's return? Your friend that betrayed you? Your boss that made an example out of you? Would you forgive when it costs you dearly? 
You see, as a church, we have to wrestle with these things because the church is not necessarily known for its reception of people. I read um, this quote. It was by Philip Yancey in the book, The Jesus I Never Knew. And he was telling the story from, uh, he was talking to a friend who said this. He goes, a friend who works with a down and out in Chicago, a prostitute came to him in wretched straits. She was homeless, her health failing, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Her eyes were washed with tears and she confessed that she had been renting out her daughter two years old. And I'm going to leave the next sentence out, which she was doing. She rented out her daughter. And she did this to support her own drug habit. My friend could hardly bear hearing the sordid details of her story, and he sat in silence, not knowing what to say. And at last he asked if she had ever thought about going to the church for help. And he said, I'll never forget the look of pure astonishment that crossed her face. Church, she cried, why would I ever go there? They just make me feel even worse than I already do. How do we deal with people? How do we see people? How do we love people? And do we see that we all need to repent? C.S. Lewis said it this way, to be a Christian is to forgive the inexcusable because God forgave the inexcusable in you. The question that we all ask is, how do we extend the Father's grace to others? How do we embody grace and extend it? Repentance. It's required from each of us, not some of us. Each of us has to figure out how we're out of alignment with God. And how do we realign ourselves and walk towards the Father who loves us, who sees us, all of us, and desires us to be with Him. And so I hope as you continue to read through Luke, you'll continue to read it through both the lens of, there's a lot for me to wrestle with here. And there's always something that I can tweak to realign it closer towards Jesus. And we continue this journey with a loving Father who guides us and shows us the next step until we see him face to face. Because the festival I'm most excited to be in is that festival in heaven. When it says the people from the north and the south and the east and the west will be joined together in celebration of what God has done. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for a chance to review your word. And God, I don't understand how a loving father could be so loving to his children. But God, we take it in faith. God, we wrestle with folks who when they hear catastrophe strike someone else, they say, well, they had it coming. That tower fell because, well, they just weren't right with you. God, when we hear about someone who was killed by someone, they're like, well, they had that coming. Look at their life. But God, your word says that you came for every one of us. You said that whoever believes in you can have eternal life. And so God, we see your heart of wanting each of us to turn back to you. And so God, forgive us when we're weak, when we stray, and help us remember how we're received, that we can always run to you. Thank you for this message, God, in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us. We hope something you heard today will draw you closer to God and encourage you to know him better. If you found this message podcast helpful, please subscribe, write a review, and consider sharing it with someone else. If there is anything we can do for you, a question we could talk through with you, a prayer we could say on your behalf, 
or a need you have, please don't hesitate to let us know. We are better together. Please connect with us soon. Take care.